Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Justin Murphy. Justin is a political scientist, political theorist, podcaster, author, blogger, and all-around extremely prolific online personality. Justin is also the host of the Other Life Podcast, and you can find his writing as well as more of his work and thoughts over at theotherlifenow.com. We talk about his new book, Base Deleuze, the man Deleuze himself, what it means to be based, and Justin's interpretation of why Deleuze is based, according to his book, the Deleuzean concept of lines of flight, disciplinary versus control societies, libertarian communism, and Diogenes and his concept of defacing the currency. Justin was gracious enough to give us a good bit of his time here, as well as do some thinking in real time on this episode. So strap in, it's going to be a whirlwind. And now, without further ado, I give you Justin Murphy. Hello and welcome to the Euro Politics Podcast. This is Alex Mershak. My guest today is Justin Murphy. Uh, Justin has a very, very interesting uh, set of experiences. Currently, uh, he is a podcaster, live streamer, author, uh, uh, goes by a number of other titles. Justin, do you want to introduce yourself real quick to the audience? Yeah, sure. If you, if you prefer, yeah, sure. I am a political theorist and political scientist and... I recently left my academic career. I was a professor for more than five years. I decided to jump ship to go full-time on the internet, and I've been doing that for a little bit less than a year now. Great, great. And I actually, um, oddly enough, uh, I recently spoke with um, Jason Snyder and Jared Jaynes over at the Both And podcast. And so in preparation for talking to you today, I went ahead and listened to the episode um, that you did with them, I think, back in November, uh, mm-hmm. just to see sort of, you know, what you what you guys chatted about. My listeners haven't had a chance to hear that episode yet. It'll be coming out actually this week. But uh, one of the things that I, 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 I was happy to learn, I, I'm pretty sure it was on that podcast, was to just get a little bit of background from them uh, or from your conversation with them on... Uh, on the the auspices under which you you ended up leaving academia academia and uh, I'm only bringing this up just because I want to pay you a huge compliment here which is that in my view you're actually one of the few people that I can think of who is truly uh, living out the life of an intellectual and that you've devoted yourself entirely to more or less uh, making it economically viable for yourself to do your intellectual pursuits so I, I totally applaud you for that Oh, well, thank you so much for the kind words. It's nice to be understood and appreciated. That yeah. means a lot to me. Okay, so um, now recently uh, you have this uh, new ebook out, correct? Uh, based a little. Yeah, that's right. And soon to be soon to be paperback in just a day or two. Actually, it should be it should be available on Amazon. 
Great, great. So I, I would definitely recommend that anyone who uh, is hearing this to go out and uh, get his book, particularly when it comes out on paperback. It's hard to get a book uh, out on paperback, and it's really a, a big accomplishment. Um, I know that this is just your first salvo. I'm sure there'll be a number of other books forthcoming. Uh, you're an extremely mm-hmm. uh, prolific thinker and prolific uh, writer and online personality in general, so I'm sure you've got a lot to say. Sure. Let's get to it. Yeah. So um, now my audience is not exactly necessarily propo- uh, composed of uh, political science people, political theorists. Uh, we have political theory as sort of the intellectual substrate from which our uh, base of operations starts. But I mm. just wanted to, if you could briefly uh, give the audience uh, an update on uh, or I guess just a, a brief bio on who Deleuze is, and then we can get into your book a little bit. Okay, yeah, sure. Happy to do that. So uh, Gilles Deleuze is uh, quite popular, I would say, at the moment. He's quite hot, quite fashionable uh, French philosopher. And his life spanned the the better part of the 20th century. Uh, he died in 1995, I believe. And was yeah an active philosopher in France for for several decades, uh, especially in kind of the mid mid to late twentieth century. Yeah. He, and, oh, sorry. Continue. No. Okay. I was just gonna. No problem. You can you can jump in if you want to. But I was just <laughs> going to give a little bit of background on his life. Please um, do. Yeah. The one one of the interesting features of his of his biography is that his parents were very conservative, and a lot of people don't know this. And something you know from the political science literature, this is something that I seize on in, in Base Deleuze, mm-hmm. is that um, political orientation is uh, at least partly heritable. So, you know, I wouldn't oversell this point just because your parents are reactionaries doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be a reactionary. But it's just an interesting little data point that, you know, uh, one of the many biographical features of Gilles Deleuze that uh, just pretty much nobody talks about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's that I take that as quite interesting. His parents were actually fascists, more or less. Uh, they were voters for the Croix de Feu, which was the uh, basically a kind of French version of something like Mussolini's party or Hitler's party. It was not quite as uh, kind of insane and 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 bad as Mussolini or Hitler's parties, but it was pretty much in that you know what political scientists will call party families, that type of party. And his parents were sympathetic to them. Now, Deleuze was a uh, leftist by most indications, you know, so I don't deny that. But there are all these interesting little data points in his life and and even in his writings mm-hmm. that have weirdly reactionary uh, kind of connotations or implications. And that's kind of a jumping point. That's, that's a jumping off point uh, for the book. Um, so yeah, that, that's a, that's, you know, one could say many things about his biography, but pretty much he's known as a post-structuralist, um, which is often associated with postmodernism. but something I argue in the book is that, you know, these two terms really have to be distinguished. I would say that Deleuze was not a postmodern, although he was a post-structuralist and for people who are listening who might not know what that means, you know, post-structuralism really just refers to the philosophical tendencies that come after structuralism, which was the overwhelmingly kind of popular dominant kind of French mode of philosophical thought in b- before 
people like Dilla's. So people like um, uh, Levi Strauss, Claude Levi Strauss, or um, uh, Louis Althusser. These are stru- famous structuralists. Mm-hmm. And structuralism is pretty much what it sounds like. It's it's a, it's an approach to social theory in which you understand uh, the different um, you know various social phenomena as as structures that recur in different times and places and um, you know then people like Derrida and Deleuze disrupt this famously and uh, tend to focus on how this stable recurring structures that seem to define society are not in fact the most interesting uh, you know objects of attention and that in fact it's the way that structures are uh, slippery and often uh, unstable that becomes the focus of people like Derrida and Deleuze. So, so that's a reasonable way to just very briefly uh, kind of put put Deleuze in a very kind of simple cartoonish, um, you know, context in the, in the in the 20th century history of philosophy. Um, but you know, he's very very unique and and quite strange, uh, famously obscure. His writings are are famously difficult. And, uh, you know, the general consensus in academia is that he's he's a he's a left wing kind of anarchist, communist, uh, post-structuralist thinker and philosopher. And the the point of, of base Deleuze was to really uh, poke a bunch of holes in that overly comfortable consensus. He's he's not at all, in my opinion, a straightforward leftist, although he had definitely had a leftist temperament in some ways. And throughout his life, he what he did express solidarity with. The working class, and in in many ways he, he was a leftist, but in many other ways he wasn't. And I think that this is generally true of all great thinkers. They they really rarely map on to these uh, simple ideological coordinates. Well, that was that was fantastic. Um, and I'm really glad that you brought up uh, those key points about how you view that he's differentiated from others, uh, other French intellectuals who might be in the post-structuralist cohort, uh, with regard especially to his critiques of the left. And um, really quickly, I just wanted to, so there's some clarification on this. I know you get asked this question a lot, but uh, my readers probably haven't heard you explain it before. What do you mean by based? <laughs> so based is a really interesting word. Like many memes on the internet, it go it has gone through different cycles of meaning and has meant different things to different people at different times. Uh, it was, to my knowledge, pretty much launched as a as a popular term by the rapper Lil B. Yeah. Lil B the Based God. <laughs> yeah. The Lil Based B. God was Yeah. His his nickname was the Based God. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Lil B's message, his whole demeanor, was always to him, based seemed to suggest a kind of just uh, simple, nice, uh, positive attitude, essentially. Uh, and, you know, being happy, being kind, being being generally positive in a nutshell is what is what based meant to Lil B being grateful, being uh, supportive, constructive, it really, you know, almost a quite trite meaning, you know, nothing too fancy. But that was always Lil B's demeanor and his and his general general message. And I think that's what based meant in his context. Somehow it later gets um, picked up by right wingers on the Internet like frog Twitter folks, mm-hmm. all right types. Um, and it, in that context, it, it basically is opposed to cringe. There's this, there's this dichotomy or dualism between, uh, that which is cringe and that which is based, uh, the, and so frog Twitter says, 
you know, all the woke lefties and all that stuff and, and the, the, the stuff that um, normies and NPCs are interested, all of that stuff is uh, what they call cringe and blue pilled. And then all the stuff that frog Twitter and the alt right people like, you know, for instance, Trump and, you know, uh, you know, free speech crusaders and troll, you know, badass, funny trolls who don't give a shit about what normal society thinks about them. All of that is based in red pilled. Uh, so this distinction between cringe and blue pilled and based in red pilled is very kind of prominent to a certain pocket of, of, of the web at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I use based in a way that is a kind of a combination of those two. And I think that this is what is so cool about meme culture and why the internet is so interesting and, and fun and, and attractive for creative intellectuals is that by definition memes, uh, their, their meaning shifts rapidly all the time that that's kind of their, their defining characteristic. And so if I use the word based, perhaps I'm going to use it in a different way. I'm going to, I'm going to put a unique twist on it. You can't say that I'm, you know, I'm not signaling that I'm a member of frog Twitter cause I'm not right. Uh, I'm not signaling that I support, you know, any of the stupid stuff, uh, that, that all right people support. I'm not, I am, but I am nonetheless, um, uh, mimetically, uh, participating in a weird, uh, tradition. Yeah. You know, tradition is kind of a really heavy word to describe something like the history of a meme or the evolution of a meme. But nonetheless, I'm pretty much taking this, uh, signifier and I'm twisting it in my own way. And, for, and so for it pretty much the way that I use it has connotations of, of those, those two main kind of previous uses. So in, in my understanding then based is just grounded, real, honest, radically authentic and direct and unconcerned with social opinion, unconcerned with all of the highfalutin nonsense of sophisticated people and overeducated people and basically all the noise that um, lots of people get very fixated on or infatuated with. Being based means being um, outside of the noise, turning off all the noise, not caring about the noise of, of popular opinion or, or sophisticated, educated, uh, fashionable practices. Being based is just doing what you believe in doing and nothing else, standing on your own two feet and nothing else, being radically yeah, grounded in a, in a way. Um, and so this kind of has kind of, this is kind of similar to Lil B. It has a similar kind of uh, connotation or message, but it's also kind of similar to the, a little bit to the, to the frog Twitter usage, because this does, in my understanding, based does always mean you're constantly saying things that uh, break the rules of polite society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, obviously uh, Deleuze was in very much immersed in the French left-wing intellectual um, milieu of his day. It's not like he was himself necessarily an outcast. Uh, but mm. in what in what ways would you would you say that he is different from from his cohort? And in particular, I know you've brought up before his, uh, I guess, unique. Uh, critique or perhaps uh, warnings uh, to members of the left that have to do with this concept of staying grounded. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Mm. 
Sure. Well, it's a good question. How would you how would you primarily distinguish Deleuze from his contemporaries? Well, part of me does want to answer. Part of me wants to say I, I'm not sure that I have a particularly interesting or sophisticated answer to this, but my my instinct would be that I do think there's something kind of unique about Deleuze in his his real idiosyncratic individualism. Now, I don't mean political individualism. I mean just his his actual nature or temperament mm-hmm. and his ability to go down, you know, what he would call lines of flight in 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 really quite creative and aggressive ways that uh, really don't m- map back to anything normal or currently existing. His his capacity to you know gradually and progressively go further and further away from what is normal or what is even you know interpretable or or legible. So I, th- so I do think he was he was he was unique in that regard. So li- lines of flight actually is a a, a Deleuzian term. Do you want to uh, explain that really quick? I, I know uh, you, you've noted before that he's uh, notorious for introducing this whole lexicon that allowed him to sort of sneak concepts in to the field in a time when people were being very, um, very obtruse that might not have otherwise uh, been easily digestible within his own in-group. Right. So... I do think I do think that's what he was doing. And the line of flight is one of the kind of most important concepts in his joint work with Felix Gattari, mm-hmm. where they talk about the line of flight as it's pretty much the escape or exit from that which is always trying to domesticate you, always trying to channel you and capture you. And, you know, there are these kind of phenomena of capture everywhere. I mean, even just being a member of a, of a friend group, you know, um, you know, you're, you're a college student, for instance, if maybe some of your listeners are college students, you learn very quickly, right. In a kind of college setting in certain groups, as you're making friends in college, there are just certain ideas and words and practices that are cool. And then there are others that are not. And there is a very strong kind of automatic immediate pressure that you feel in your mind and your body to say certain things that are liked and not say other things that are not liked. And so they're very interested in how our society and and social phenomena in general, from small groups up to big groups and and governments and everything, uh, all along that continuum, there are so many processes, very strong processes that are essentially containing and, and narrowing down what it is possible for us to even think or say or do. And they're really interested in how we can decode those those phenomena of capture that that so radically constrain what it's possible for us to think and say and do. They're interested in how can we decode those 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 capture processes such that then we can um, create bust open brand new wide open vistas of of experimentation and and creativity in in the vast domain of what is possible, but is unfortunately, always socially kind of prohibited or constrained. And the line of flight is kind of their um, key concept that defines the vector through which individuals can escape these processes of capture and find these new open vistas of of experimentation possibility. And so they try to theorize like how to do that essentially. And so there's a a rich kind of um, whole set of uh, discourses and elaborations on 
on this basic concept of the line of flight. And we could spend a whole hour trying to kind of unpack that. Mm-hmm. And that's something we could do if you wanted to. But the, but the basic idea of the line of flight is you um, find – here's how I would summarize it. Sure. Um, it the, one of the key things to understand about the line of flight is that it's all about affect. It's about you know when you, when you feel forces of capture constraining you and domesticating you. You can usually feel also inside of you. You feel a kind of calling to some other thing. It, it excites you. It stimulates you. You know, maybe there's a book in the library or maybe there's a blogger on the internet who your friends say it's very naughty. You're not supposed to read that blogger. Yeah, don't Someone listen like to Nick Justin Land Murphy. Or, He's dangerous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. What, whatever the case might be. You can always feel inside of yourself an affective charge, a kind of affective attraction to different things in your immediate local environment. And it could, you know, it could be some writer or, or some book in the library, but it also could be something amazingly simple, like ridiculously simple. And, and they give a lot of examples of this. You know, it could be like, you know, you go for a walk one afternoon and you just you see something down an alley that's kind of strange, and then you go down that alley, and then it leads to some other thing that's strange. You know, they give this, this example of, um, you know, they use an example from like Virginia Woolf novel, I think, about walking, for instance, uh, and they give a bunch of other examples. It can be. Yeah, there, there's no telling in advance what it's going to be, but pretty much the, the logic of the line of flight is that you are constantly through your senses and your affects, mm-hmm. you are constantly, if you pay attention, being called out of genuine interest and, 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 and attraction. Um, you find joy in pursuing weird little things that are off the map of what other people even think about or understand or can even interpret. And what they what they're trying to tell us, I believe, is – those are the most precious and important features of, of, of life for, for any kind of creative person or intellectual person or political revolutionary, anyone who's interested in uh, finding freedom and increasing uh, liberation in the world, that these micro movements of affect that point us towards um, vectors moving away from that which is normal and that which is kind of socially captured – that, that this is that this is the line of flight. They say pursue that line of flight where your affect leads you. Uh, pursue that line of flight, and you know that we. I, I could I could try to you know tell you much more about this if this is something that you're interested in. Uh, but I think that would suffice as a kind of short summary of the line of flight. Well, that that was absolutely beautiful, and actually that helped me get a more comprehensive understanding of it as well. It's more than just uh, spontaneity or. Um, breaking out of social conditioning it's actually more like um a deep self-knowledge and a willingness to really genuinely perceive the world that's in front of you yes that's yeah. right well put and that's a, that's an important that's an important observation that you just made because a lot of people do have this impression that delusian you know creativity is essentially this kind of naive postmodern creativity like anything goes like as if they just wrote as if they just wrote you know um capitalism and schizophrenia their two volume work probably their, their most famous you know two books as if it was just kind of like wild chaotic you know imagination and scribbling of you know diagrams and such like uh, uh, this is kind of the what's rotten about postmodernism and that's not at all what they're doing it's not they're not saying that the line of flight is any possible crazy thing just to be ridiculous for the sake of being ridiculous or, or something like that, um, which is frankly how, how some people seem to kind of try to practice a, a Delusian 
kind of ethics or, or, or lifestyle as if just, you know, you need to be randomly chaotic and that's like really cool and hip and fashionable. That's going to be like a Deleuzian way to escape, you know, the codes of capture. It's not that at all. In fact, and, and so you're, you're absolutely right to, to pick up on that. It's, it's actually a very rigorous and disciplined obedience to reality because, mm-hmm. you know, when you go on that walk and you see something down some alley and you start going down that alley and then you, you pursue where it leads one thing after another, you're not, it's not random. It's not at all some kind of like, uh, you know, simple, random, chaotic, uh, process. It's you're paying attention to what your affects are processing in the world and, and you're being obedient and you're submitting to what reality is actually calling forth. Yeah. And do you, uh, do you see, uh, following through the, through a line of flight almost as a compulsion, uh, as itself an act of faith? And how is this related to, um, Deleuze's conception of religion or transcendence? That's a really good, yeah, that's a really good point. I do think that there's a faith component in all of this because when you go down the line of flight, you don't know where it's going to go by definition. You don't know where it's going to go because by definition, it's outside of the grid of current established intelligibility. So in a way you are trusting, you are trusting your affects, but it's not really rational to trust your affect. It, it usually, it, it leads to um, highly unpredictable and unexpected outcomes. It's, you know, and it's often not what you think you want, right? So it, it really is a kind of wager that is not fully justified by a rational calculus. Mm-hmm. And that essentially is is what faith is on, on some level. So I think that's that's an astute uh, observation that you made. I'm, I'm not even sure that I, I make that precise connection in the book, but in the book I do talk about, uh, the kind of strange, uh, religious dimension in Deleuze in particular, the Christian dimension. And here I pretty much am just cribbing from work by Peter Hallward, who wrote a book, um, called out of this world. And it's really quite a, a unique and interesting book. My hat, my hat is off to, to Peter Hallward. It's, it's quite, a uh, yeah, I think, creative and and interesting and you know somewhat against the grain uh interpretation of, of Deleuze as essentially a kind of uh religious thinker as a, as in particular as a kind of mystic mystical thinker um Hallward thinks that Hallward thinks that Deleuze's philosophy is is really genuinely pointing to a kind of to a to a kind of otherworldly um worldview and I think it's true I think it's I think it's very well put um and I, I kind of dig through and based the laws, I dig through some of the other aspects of of his life and of, of his work that I think are quite interesting in this regard. You know, he did actually roll with some uh, kind of Catholics in, in, in France at the time uh, He when he was young. In fact, uh, he had a mentor and, you know, there's this kind of like highbrow kind of socialite um, Catholic lady uh, named Magdalene uh, Davy. Uh, I'm, 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 I think I'm forgetting the name, but that's a, that's a slight, slightly incorrect, but, um, you can find it in the book. Uh, and this woman was, was, was actually a, a scholar of Catholicism and she was a Catholic herself and, and Deleuze would go to her salon and there were other Catholics there also. 
And, you know, people also what something people in the West today, um, I'm sorry, people, Anglo people in, 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 you know, 2020 sure. who are interested in continental philosophy, what, what a lot of people don't understand today, like students today don't understand is, you know, in France and countries such as Spain, uh, Catholicism was way more influential than really anyone knows or, or remembers or can understand today. So, you know. Um, for someone who came of age at the time that Deleuze came of age, Catholicism was way more just in the air, uh, way more normal, way more powerful and 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 effective in, as a kind of cultural force, whether you subscribe to it or not. You know, so Deleuze did identify as an atheist, to be clear about this. Um, you know, he, that's why that's why Hallward's interpretation is 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 quite interesting and why mine I kind of, mine kind of pushes that envelope even further. Uh, so he so. I'll be straightforward about that. He does he does identify as an atheist, but um, when you look at his life, you realize, oh, he, this is actually uh, someone who's kind of relatively suffused in a in a Catholic environment, is quite kind of friendly with and influenced by certain Catholics, and um, yeah, I, I do I do think that in in a, in a really interesting and very roundabout way, he is pretty much. Whether he even knows it or not, I'm not sure. But he's he's pretty much recapitulating a kind of uh, very Christian philosophy and 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 ultimately rather uh, socially conservative mm-hmm. philosophy. Um, you know, and it, because if you look at his life, he was actually, you know, a very simple man. You know, he didn't travel much. He even talks about this how you know he said he and Guattari say and you know the nomad never travels. The nomad has no need to travel. The nomad is so nomad. That he has no need to travel. He's not running around, sleeping around. He's not, you know, looking for liberation in the form of, you know, a variety of pleasures and and this kind of naive uh, attitude that liberation is sometimes associated with. Uh, he's, you know, he stays in one place. Dillis lived in the suburbs his whole life, had one wife, had kids, didn't really ever do anything particularly interesting. Um, lived very a very, based. very simple, very based life. Exactly, exactly. And you know, it's a very, it's a very based attitude. It's a very Christian attitude. Um, uh, it's, it's actually reminiscent of someone like Chesterton. I don't think I cite Chesterton in the book, but Chesterton says extremely similar things about how nomads don't travel and, uh, and how actually it's the based Christian who just focuses on, you know, the people around him and works hard and, uh, you know, stays in one place and puts his feet on the ground in a humble attitude that this person is actually the one who, um, has the most expansive and rich, you know, set of of creative and intellectual possibilities, precisely because they're they're focused and they're based and they're, and they're submitting to this kind of uh, Christian simplicity and humility. Uh, so, so I think you see that exact thing, that exact idea, in not only Deleuze's ideas but also in his life. Fantastic. Now, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here and move oh. more into less focus on. Um, Deleuze's autobiographical characteristics and get a little bit into the theory side of things. Um, So one of the essays that I read in preparation for this show that you've referenced a number of Mm -hmm. times in other interviews and in your own videos is uh, this little piece called Postscript on Societies of Control. It's Mm -hmm. a short short piece, uh, but it does a really good job of... Uh, explaining how the ways and and really if, if for someone that hasn't read Deleuze, it, it's not a bad place to start. Uh, 
mm-hmm. explaining where Deleuze takes off from the ideas of Foucault and getting into really uh, the meat of where his theory is at, because I think it's something that's really relevant to us today. I think readers uh, living in the 21st century might have even resonated with it better than uh, perhaps the people who would have been reading it at the time he wrote it, I believe, in 1991. Um, so do you want to go over just the, the cleavage here of disciplinary versus control societies and get into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. If, you, if you'd like me to, I'm happy to. So, uh, you know, Foucault is very famous for his diagnosis of what he calls disciplinary societies. And the the institutions associated with what he calls discipline or disciplinary societies are pretty much the big, huge institutions that define, you know, our, our memory, at least, of uh, society as it was from the 20th century back down into the 19th century and in and the 18th century to some degree as well um so the school system the prison system the factory system the medical hospital systems these big institutions that pretty much grow um out of the more or less kind of industrial process it's sort of all downstream from industrialization so so what these disciplinary institutions have in common is that they're large. They process individuals as numbers, as you know. So think of like the, when you when you enter a prison, you know, you're given a number, and then you're assigned to a cell which has a number, and you know the prison is essentially a kind of assembly line of of punished people. You know, it's 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 like the penal version of of the factory of the industrial factory. If you're if you're working in a you know industrial factory, you sit at a particular desk and you do one task in this complex assembly line, and you do that one thing over and over again. You're just one number in this very large cog. You know, this very large machine. You're you're one cog in a very large machine. You're relatively fixed. You're monitored. And you just basically uh, follow through on that. And that's, and that's pretty much all there is to it. And you go in and out of these institutions in a fairly discreet way. Right? So, you know, the, the classical, what, what Foucault, it's kind of confu- confusing because uh, Foucault calls the age of disciplinary societies the, the classical age, which is kind of strange because most people would think of other things when they think of, of, of classical. But um, We'll just call it the kind of the 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 age of of disciplinary uh, institutions or the age of disciplinary societies. In this age, you go in and out of these these various disciplinary institutions. So so long so you know if you go if you're sent to jail, then you enter this massive monolithic uh, system, this assembly line for punishment, and you go through the famous, you know, panopticon. This is this is where that concept of the panopticon comes in. You know, the structuring, the architectural structuring of prisons. There's this famous design, uh, which is essentially circular, and the prison guards sit in the middle of it, and they can see all the way around. Uh, so they can see into all of the cells of the prison. But the kind of genius of this architectural design is that if you're a prisoner in one of these prison cells, you 
probably aren't actually being looked at by the prison guard at any given moment, but mm-hmm. because you could be, it effectively is able to kind of enforce a kind of monitoring and, and enforce a discipline on these prisoners um, that is kind of rationally multiplied. It's multiplied through a kind of application of, of rationality to um, previously, you know, pre-modern, less, less than rational arrangements. And so the Panopticon is probably Foucault's kind of most famous uh, symbol of the disciplinary institutions or disciplinary society. Um, it's, it's essentially the rationalization of, of these various kind of social functions. And in any event, what I was saying was, that was a bit of a digression. What I was saying was just that you go in and out of them. And so when you're in them, you're in them, but then when you're out of them, you're out of them. Right. It's another kind of defining enclosure with a discrete interior and exterior. Yeah. That's a very nice addition. Exactly. And so yeah, you can think of the same thing as school, right? Like, um, Mm -hmm. when you go and, and, and what's interesting to note is that, um, for most, most of these institutions, you know, I'm 33 and, um, so I'm not that old. Uh, and yet, um, I grew up mostly with, I think the kind of the, the tail end of, of, of these institutions in a lot of ways. Um, it's really only in the past, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, maybe that we're really looking at the end of, of this kind of disciplinary, uh, society that Foucault described and, and analyzed in, in so many different of its sub- subdomains. And what Deleuze argues in the postscript is, you know, Foucault's, he says that Foucault's analyses are no longer true. He says that digital society or, or digital culture is essentially um, making Foucault's analyses no longer relevant. And then he kind of introduces a bunch of distinctions about what's new in the new digital age. And all of a sudden, what he says is that, you know, these these disciplinary institutions, they're all being fragmented. They're all being they're all way more flexible now. It's unclear where the inside starts and where the outside starts. You're kind of in multiple of them at the same time. You know, an example would be like, you know, you're not either in prison or out of prison. You know, now there's all kinds of complicated parole arrangements or you might be out of prison, but you have an ankle bracelet that monitors your whereabouts for years after you leave prison, you know, uh, if you think about school, for instance, you know, think of like, you're essentially preparing to go to university from mm-hmm. the time that you're like in first grade nowadays, because if, you know, if you, if you don't, if you don't get into the enrichment classes in third grade, then that's going to decrease your probability of getting into pre-calc in, right. you know, eighth grade. And if you don't get into pre-calc in eighth grade, then you're not going to be able to get trigonometry done uh, by your junior year in high school. And if you're not able to get trigonometry done in your junior year of high school, then you're not going to be able to get into AP classes in your senior year. And if you're not able to get into senior uh, AP classes in your senior year, then you're not going to get into Harvard. And if you're not going to get into Harvard, you're not going to make um, really good money. And so in in all of these weirdly connected and fluid ways, um, all of these formerly discrete institutions now have their beginning points and ending points uh, stretched out much more so that it's, it's all overlapping, it's all fluid. And, you know, the argument that I make, which is kind of, I guess, my somewhat unique interpretation or gloss on this, uh, is that uh, it's essentially 
what, what he's actually really talking about is all downstream of the information revolution. He doesn't say this exactly, but it's, it's, it's a certain set of discoveries that was made in, at a fairly discrete point in time in, in, in the middle of the 20th century where, you know, scientists discovered what the nature of information is. Mm-hmm. And it's only because of that that we get things like the internet and the, 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 the explosion of information technology that we're all living through. So essentially what Deleuze is saying is that um, the, it's, it's the information revolution itself, which is now making all of these former, you know, disciplinary functions, these large, massive, uh, disciplinary control structures are now, um, being chopped up and made much more efficient, much more effective precisely thanks to, um, digitalism in particular, the, the, the digital revolution is, is what is really at the bottom of it, I think, according to Deleuze. He doesn't say that exactly, but that's my reading of it. Yeah, I think he summarizes it as um, machines based on computation rather than energy is sort of the the split that he draws. That's maybe not as precise as it could be. Um, One of the things that I keep thinking about, it's been referenced before um, by, I believe, Eric Weinstein, is that uh, post-World War II, which happens to be the focus um, for Deleuze in the postscript as well, as sort of when the shift starts starts happening, um, we have Watson and Crick who uncover the double helix structure of the human genetic code, the genome. Uh, and at the same time, of course, due to code-breaking efforts um, during that same war, we have the the rise of, of computation. And so this idea that we sort of s- discovered, as you said, what information really was, and mm-hmm. now we're in the process of sort of um, transforming society from, uh, or I- even our conceptions of what it is that we're doing from uh discrete objects or particles into a sort of wave. You know, Deleuze in the paper talks about uh, his example is surfing, right? The popularity of surfing mm-hmm. um, as, a, as an example of this. And uh, one of the things that I, I think is really interesting about you as a thinker, and I think it's uh, even more interesting that you happen to write the, this book on Deleuze, uh, is that you seem to me to be somebody that's, taken his philosophy and really truly integrated it in terms of this question of how how you should live your life uh Mm. you as far as i know uh your career is almost based entirely on over information based media that is Mm. you're using the existing infrastructure of of computers computation the internet uh, all sorts of web tools and private corporations that have created these tools as well, not to mention all of the public funding that went into getting it going in the first place. Uh, you're, you're now taking this this control structure that you're embedded in, and you're actually using it to uh, promote yourself and as a means for your own liberation. Would you agree with that interpretation? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really what Deleuze is getting at. I mean, in, in the postscript, he pretty much... He doesn't say very much about it, so it's somewhat enigmatic, but he pretty much says that he thinks the most promising places to look for liberation in the context of what he calls control societies, that's his term for it, kind of digital contemporary Western societies, 
he says the place to look for liberation in this context is what he calls jamming, piracy, and viruses. He doesn't really explain that as much as we'd like him to, but I think that this – I think that essentially what I'm trying to do in my own life is an application of this of this injunction or, or, or suggestion. And yeah, it is essentially a matter of using contemporary digital kind of cybernetic processes which are highly liable to kind of suppress us and, and control us in increasingly flexible and fluid and difficult to escape ways using these these digitalized cybernetic uh, processes to bootstrap our own novel lines of flight in even more aggressive and effective ways. I, I do think that's essentially what he's suggesting by this, these concepts of jamming piracy and viruses. It's essentially creative interventions into the cybernetic control structures that lead to um, your own empowerment and, your, and, and, and the empowerment and liberation of, of you and your friends who creatively embark on lines of flight. And, and, and that and then I think you can turn to his other writings and, and in particular the joint work with Guattari um, to try to tease out what exactly that means. Um, I think I think those books are filled with lots of pointers on what exactly that means and what exactly it looks like. And that is essentially what I'm trying to figure out experimentally through my own life. That's right. Great. And now uh, I guess whoops, I don't know if you heard that. Um, I want to turn quickly to. Uh, get I guess give the audience a little bit of insight into who you are as a thinker as well you describe yourself just because I, I believe it dovetails very nicely with this point here you, you describe yourself as a libertarian communist is that a correct characterization sure okay and um, now when people hear the word communist or when they hear the word libertarian those are relatively loaded terms um, as signifiers they probably carry with them a lot of assumptions that might not be applicable to the way, the exact way in which you're using those terms. Um, do you want to just sure. briefly describe your ideological position with regard to those two terms? Um, because I think it's actually really important for what I see as your your public-facing project, which is basically turning uh, your life's work into some form of a public good. Okay. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I mean, I'll start by saying that I think ideological labels are just so scrambled right now that, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I wouldn't really encourage anyone to put too much stock into these, into these words or care too much about these words personally. And I, and I tend to think that for true intellectuals, there is really very little need to, to even think very much about these terms. I, you know, I think I think an honest intellectual should just be seeking the truth as explosively as possible, and then let other people decide if you're a leftist or a rightist or whatever. Like, it's just not interesting to a genuine intellectual um, because you, you you pursue the truth wherever it leads, and it, maybe it'll it'll lead to some things on the left, it'll lead to some things on the right. Um, the the whole point of the, the radical intellectual life is that you don't really care where it leads. Where it leads is where it leads, and 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 that's that's reality, and and you you just um, you are, you are faithful to that and, and let the chips fall where they may. So that's, that's just a bit of a preface, but I still do sometimes use these terms just because these ideological labels, just because, you know, people are kind of obsessed with ideology and things are, you know, our Western societies are very polarized, uh, along ideological and party lines. So they're obviously 
they remain powerful signifiers. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, people want to know, people ask. So I think libertarian communist is, is as good a, a summary as, as, as any. And, you know, so people who might not be familiar, there's a certain tradition of libertarian communism for people on the kind of normal left. It means a certain thing. Um, you know, think of like the Spanish revolution and, you know, people like Derudi and, um, you know, it's, it's basically a very kind of libertarian communism or libertarian socialism is pretty much, um, a combination of anarchism and, and, and strong egalitarianism or, or communism. So pretty much the idea is that you have a vision of, of, of strong communism, but you don't want to impose it on anyone through state structures, right? So it would be kind of opposed to, it would be kind of, be, you can think of it as the opposite of, of, you know, Leninism or Stalinism. It's, it's, it's the idea of building real communism, but through decentralized, um, uh, liberation of creative energies and potentials at a grassroots level. The idea is that if you do that well and militantly and effectively, you can kind of grow communism from the ground up by just simply empowering working class people and poor people, empowering them more and more and creating a culture where people from the grassroots level are able to be more and more creative and, and take more power for themselves away from state, you know, and corporate institutions. And then that, that's, you know, that that's pretty much just uh, a quick cartoon summary of, of what libertarian communism means to most people. Um, it is a kind of recognized kind of left wing tradition. Um, for me, it, I, I, I'm sympathetic to that and it does, it does basically still describe my, my orientation. I mean, that, that is essentially what I'm interested in is how can we have maximum redistribution, absolute kind of equality of access to resources, um, which to me at, you know, at its logical endpoint is essentially what communism uh, denotes, but I want to do it in. You know, I, I would never personally subscribe to or sign up for anything that would um, use force. You know, I think I think basically an honest and ethical communist has to have a kind of very bright line, a, a bright prohibition on any way that would try to achieve communism or socialism through any force whatsoever. And I think as long as you uh, don't want to impose anything on anyone, then you're never going to you know, find yourself in the horrors of the 20th century of, you know, Stalinism or, or whatnot. Um, so yeah, that, that, I mean, that still describes me. I guess I'm a, I'm a little bit different because I do have somewhat, uh, certain con social conservative attitudes. And so I guess in a nutshell, I would say I'm, it's kind of paradoxical, but I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to certain types of, uh, severe, control, social control. But my unique twist is that it should be voluntary. Um, so I don't want to impose any, like, in other words, I don't want to impose anything on anyone in that way. I'm a libertarian, mm -hmm. but I think people should impose things on themselves in that way. I'm, I'm a kind of, I'm a somewhat social authoritarian in certain dimensions, but in my view, if it's voluntary, then there's really nothing fascist about it or, or at all you know, bad about it. Um, so like, you know, I tend to, I tend to have socially conservative opinions when it comes to things like porn and sex work and abortion and, you know, these types of, you know, social issues. I'm not like very hardline about, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not like some kind of like 
I don't, I don't like go to abortion centers and protest and shit. Like at the end of the day, I'm, I'm kind of like a milk toast liberal. Like I, I kind of, you know, I'm happy for like, I, I, in practice is what I'm saying. Like, um, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable with abortion. I think it's a diff. I think it's way more difficult and vexing and trouble, troublesome as a, as a philosophical and political question than anyone on the left wants to admit, but I'm not, you know, protesting abortion centers. Like I don't really know. I don't, I don't, I have a lot of kind of healthy uncertainty about these things. And, uh, in practice, when it comes to these issues, I'm a milquetoast liberal. Like at the end of the day, I'm, I don't lose any sleep at night from like lots of abortions taking place. And I, I don't lose sleep at night that like knowing that, you know, lots of people watch porn uh, and I'm not trying to like, go on some crusade to actually stop these things. So in practice, I'm milquetoast liberal on those things, but in, in my attitudes and opinions and philosophical political judgments, I tend to be socially conservative. So that makes it weird for me to be a libertarian communist. But this is why kind of the unique, I guess, political philosophy that I'm kind of developing in some of my recent writings, like on my blog is, and certainly in a, in a future book, is that I think the real way to have libertarian communism is by groups of people learning to be brutally austere and authoritarian on themselves. Mm-hmm. That to me is is the magic solution. And it, I think it makes perfect sense and people haven't really – um, thought this through at all yet um you know you, you've been if you want to, to have communism you've been Sorry? compared to, oh i said you've been compared to jordan peterson in that regard with the emphasis on self-efficacy and personal responsibility yeah you could say that in some in certain way i mean i talk about jordan peterson in the delos book which infuriates people but um <laughs> yeah there's, there's there's something there um basically i i you know for any workable communism, there there does need to be enforcement mechanisms, right? I mean, that that, that I think that's beyond dispute. Um, so the ideal the, the ideal vision would be one in which imagine political community in which everyone is absolutely free. There people can do people can choose to do whatever they want. They can come in and out. They can they can join the commune or they can leave the commune. Um, but so long as they're in the commune. They have to enforce certain things on themselves. If they don't enforce certain behaviors on themselves, then they are excluded from the commune. But if they do enforce certain behaviors on themselves, then they remain in the commune. And to me, this is like the the perfect way to solve the power to solve the tension between, you know, libertarian communism on the one hand, right? The problem. I mean, look, the problem with libertarian communism is uh, no one's been able to make it work, right? Like there are tons of libertarian communists. There've been tons of libertarian communist projects. Um, and none of them have actually produced an equilibrium that we would recognize as successful achieved communism. Uh, and that's because it probably relies on a kind of, uh, unrealistically hopeful attitude about how people are just going to automatically bootstrap themselves into a voluntary kind of communist equilibrium. Turns out that probably doesn't work. It's what I would prefer. Um, that's kind of the ideal, Hope, but um, it turns out that probably doesn't work. And then on the other hand, people who actually are concerned with making communism work, um, those are the people who end up uh, being somewhere on a continuum with, with someone like Stalin. Uh, so to authoritarian me, tendencies. Yeah, exactly. So it's either you're not enforcing rules enough, libertarian communism, mm-hmm. or you're enforcing rules too much, authoritarian communism. And to me, th- there is actually a, a viable um, – 
kind of third way. That's, that's a very uh, unpopular term, and I don't mean it in the way it's usually used. But there is a kind of third type of communism, let's say, that solves this puzzle by basically making the commune a voluntary polity, voluntary system, and um, so long as you're enforcing certain requisite behaviors on yourself, then you remain in the redistribution network of communism. But if you're unable to enforce them on yourself, then you're excluded from the redistribution mechanism. And yeah, I mean, I don't think many people have really ever um, thought much about this or thought or written much about this. But I have a few blog posts on the record now about this and developing this. And I, I genuinely think it's it's um, a really promising way to think about it that's, that's just terribly uh, underexplored. Great. And uh, so I've got a few more questions for you here before we reach the end of our time. One of your pinned tweets uh, at the top of your profile right now talks about it sort of gives a two-minute presentation of what you think is sort of the 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 shortest TLDR of Deleuze's philosophy possible, according to yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And I know you're a fan of Diogenes, who's the notorious uh, Greek philosopher who sort of hung around in a barrel and in the open market and you know, went around harassing people and urinating in public and sort of just generally um, dispensing with all social norms or regard for um, customs of polite society. And you talk about Mm -hmm. in this post the concept of defacing the currency. Do you want to Mm -hmm. tell me what you think that means a a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So... An interesting connection here to start is that Deleuze talks about in in the postscript, he talks about how, you know, in the control societies, contemporary digital societies, as opposed to Foucault's traditional disciplinary societies, in control societies t- today, it has the, the, the image one should have in one's mind of how control operates is like exchange rates. He uses exchange rates as, as an example. And this is very interesting and useful for us as we try to think about what Diogenes meant when he talks about exchange, you know, defacing the currency. You can see this in society today, right? Like even on a college campus, I'll kind of give, I'll make all my examples about college since <sighs> college. You know, um, you see certain ideas and fashions go up and down in terms of their stock price, right? Mm-hmm. Um, certain words become cool to say, and if you say a certain word, you get you know, a higher reward in the, in the social perceptions of people around you. But then some other word goes out of fashion and, oh, if you use that word, you know, your, um, you know, your stock price goes down. Uh, this is, I think what he's talking, what Deleuze is talking about when he talks about kind of the prevalence of exchange rates, everything now is so fluid, right? So everything from words to clothing, to practices, to behaviors, to how you walk, to how you think, to what you do with your life, to what you create, to what you write. All of those things are now on these highly fluid markets, highly fluid exchange rates. So the price of something, kind of the social price, the and, and here price is understood in the most general way, right? So it can be money, but it can also be just social valuation, like what's cool, what's what's hip. Um, those, those pricing mechanisms are now extremely distributed extremely decentralized and fluid and efficient, right? Because we have things like social media, right? We have all of these fast-paced, 
digital technologies that connect us and allow for the, the movement of information to take place so much faster. That's essentially why this is the case. That, that's, that's what's at the bottom of this. So now everything we think and say and do is on these highly fluid exchange, you know, exchange markets essentially where the price of things, the stock price of things um, can go way up in one day, right, with a viral sensation or can go way down in one day if it's, you know, quote unquote canceled, right? Um, this is what we're seeing today, in, you know, with meme culture and with cancel culture and all of this is a kind of just later stage of what Deleuze is diagnosing in the postscript, okay? So, so imagine society as this set of interlinked markets essentially about what is valued and what's not valued, right? It's not just companies on, you know, the, the Dow Jones. It's, it's the words we use. It's what we think and what we do also has this kind of stock price structure. This is what Deleuze says in, in the postscript that more and more everything is going to have this kind of fluid exchange rate type of structure. So it's really interesting because in some ways digital culture today is laying bare the underlying mechanics of how things in society are valued and how those processes work. At the time of someone like Diogenes, obviously information moves much slower. For, by the way, for people who don't know, Diogenes is a um, figure in ancient Greece. He's a um, very strange philosopher associated with the, the, the school known as the cynics, the ancient cynics. And that means something very different than what we mean by cynicism, just to be clear. Um, and so in that time period, in that time and place, obviously information moved way slower, right? You don't have this like highly decentralized, integrated social markets like we have on social media today. Um, you know, you had people who saw each other at like the local town square, the local marketplace or whatever. That's about it. And so um, uh, the concept of defacing the currency to Diogenes, as I understand it, at least in my interpretation of it, is that, you know, at any given time, there are certain norms and fashions that are powerful and influential and valued and everyone thinks they're cool and good and right. Um, but whatever those values are at any particular point in time are probably going to be really hypocritical uh, in any kind of modern Western society. And essentially, you know, ancient Greece is kind of the first Western society. It's the first kind of bourgeois society in some sense. You know, you had, you know, um, you have classes and you have you have an economy and there are high class citizens and low class citizens and a major distinction between slaves and merchants and, and then, you know, the aristocrats. So pretty much all of um, all of kind of modern bourgeois, the, the technically, OK, if you're a historian, like technically what they call like modern bourgeois society comes later, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But the but the all of the um, all of the basic ingredients for what will become what we call modern bourgeois society all of the basic ingredients are really there for the first time in a very undeveloped way in ancient Greece. Okay. And so um, a defining characteristic of, of bourgeois society is this um, differential or discrepancy between the public face that you put on and then the private reality of who you really are. This is, you know, this is Norbert Elias and the rise of manners. If you, if you want to read Norbert Elias, pretty much what defines modernity, what defines modern life as we know it. What, what defines bourgeois life is, by definition, hypocrisy. It's the it's 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 modern manners, right? It's it's you know you go to a dinner party and you look really nice. You're wearing fancy clothes. You use sophisticated language. When in fact, you know, when you go to bed at night, you know you're you you scratch you know you scratch your ass and you um you know you pee in a bucket like a dog, right? Like at the end of the day, 
you're not really the polished thing that you present to the world. That that's what that's a defining characteristic of, of what modern society is. Okay, and it's just starting off in ancient Greece. So um, Diogenes was basically the first person to say all of what is normally valued by normal people is essentially dishonest. It's it's intrinsically deceptive, and because of that. There's always going to be disequilibrium in in what is actually true and what is actually valued. In other words, the true valuation of things in a modern bourgeois society is always going to be other than the one that reigns. Like the reigning valuation of things, you know, the 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 reigning current stock prices, as I was saying before, of various phenomena or practices or ideas or words, that which reigns is always going to be off from the true one. What it really should be if everything was adequately and correctly measured and calibrated and valued correctly. Yeah, um, and you can make and, a lot of money betting against it. <laughs> right. Well, that's that's interesting, and that's something we could we could pick that apart too. In in a way, that's kind of what I'm doing. But but let me just finish this sure. um, little bit of explanation. Sorry if I'm being a little long winded. It is it is complicated, honestly. And every time I talk about it, I, I every time I talk about it, I get a little bit further. I make a little bit more progress. In really connecting all of the dots, so I'm I'm really doing you know real thinking for you honestly here, uh, you know transparently. So, the uh, what Diogenes says is that one should the the solution to this, in other words, is to what he called deface the currency. And what Diogenes did was he basically went around and did what we would think of today as essentially publicity stunts or or kind of just absurd provocations. Mm-hmm. Um, Basically, performance art really is, is truly what it was. You know, he's known for many things like, um, you know, you'd run around the marketplace in daylight with a lamp and people would ask him, what are you doing, dude? And you'd say, I'm, I'm looking for a man, you know, mm-hmm. basically just utterly insulting the absolute hypocrisy of everyone around him in this just absurdly aggressive, militant, gadfly type of way. Um, it's kind of like, you know, Socrates the gadfly, but on drugs in, in this like crazy aggressive way um and yeah but also at the so people generally hated him he was very annoying obviously uh you know and he lived like an animal you know he'd masturbate in public um do all types of these very animalistic things but what he's doing is he's actually laying bare the reality of of the human beast you know he's actually being honest in in being this kind of terrible aggressive animalistic uh insane provocateur all he's actually doing is being himself and 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 revealing basic human drives that bourgeois modern man uh, suppresses and hides and and mutilates. Okay, and so that's his that's his philosophical operation, and he would call it um, you know defacing the currency precisely because of of everything I've laid out in terms of you know the the kind of you know, exchange rate society that, that Deleuze describes. The idea is that when you lay bare the truth in a kind of provocative, performative way, and in particular when it causes you some punishment, like when normal people look at you and think you're crazy or dumb or stupid, um, and it's because you're laying bare something that everyone else has agreed to lie about, when that happens, by definition, this is a, or not by definition, but rather this is a reliable reproduce political mechanism, I would argue, when you perform this operation of defacing the currency, 
you're not trying to persuade anyone. You're not trying to convince anyone. You don't need anyone to approve you or like you or accept you. What's radical about this operation of defacing currency is that you're, to use Deleuzian language, you're jamming the cybernetic control structures. You're, you're, you're introducing a virus into the, into the, the current valuation of things, uh, to the current kind of exchange rate uh, cybernetic control structures that Deleuze describes. You're, with your behaviors, you're putting into that system of valuation mechanisms that literally cannot be stopped because they don't require anyone to support you or agree with you. You're actually operating directly on people's perceptions of what is real and what isn't real. That's the that's the idea of defacing the currency, according to Diogenes. That's why he performed these insane, absurd uh, philosophical provocations and what we would essentially call performance art. Because by doing that, when you kind of take the heat and people just hate you for it or whatever, but nonetheless, you're you're exposing the certain realities, certain truths. You're putting them out there, whether people like it or not. You can't unhear that, right? You can't unsee that stuff. You're you're um, you're actually changing what has power and what doesn't have power because you have to remember that also, you know, Alexander the Great, for instance, mm. said that um, if he could not be Alexander, he would be Diogenes. Yes. So what on earth? So what on earth is going on there? Why would the most powerful person at the time say that if he could not be himself, he would be this madman? homeless guy who runs around naked masturbating and um, doing insane uh, performance art that just upsets everyone. Why would Alexander the Great want to be Diogenes if he could not be Alexander the Great? And it's exactly because of what I'm saying, that someone like Diogenes is truly, concretely powerful because he's living, he's living, he's living well. He's, he's living a simple life and he's not He's not suffering from any of the uh, kind of the, the tortures of, of bourgeois hypocrisy. And he's actually so powerful that he can afford for huge numbers of people to hate him. He can afford for a society to look down on him and make fun of him. Um, and um, that is a sign of true power. So because that is a sign of true power, it's a credible signal. In other words, it's a costly signal of what true power is um, because of that. The, the truths that Diogenes lays bare cannot be ignored by other people. They can say they hate Diogenes, but they cannot deny, they cannot unhear or unsee the truth that he is laying bare in his philosophical provocations. That's what he meant by defacing the currency, and I believe that is what Deleuze meant when he talks in the postscript about jamming piracy and viruses. Wow, well, that was fantastic. Um, I was going to ask you one more question, but I think I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, let the viewers, uh, not viewers, listeners. <laughs> if, you, if you don't, if you don't mind a brief, if you don't mind a brief answer, you can go ahead and ask it. Oh, uh, well, okay. So I'll just, I'll give you my last question here. Although I, I do right. want to compliment you real quick for thinking out loud there. Um, Todd Mays, in Todd Mays' book uh, on Deleuze, he says the central question for Deleuze is how one might live. What's your answer to that? Oh, you broke up. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll repeat. In Todd May's book uh, on Deleuze, he says Deleuze's central question is how one might live. What's your answer to that question? Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I think that's totally right. And my answer 
is that in the most based way possible, I think that's that's essentially what I'm trying to summarize with my kind of bastedness. Um, and I guess if you if you want to know more about what I mean by that, you have to read the book. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Justin. You can read uh, Justin's uh, other work uh, and get connected with the rest of the work that he's doing over at theotherlifenow.com. You can hear his uh, takes on things as well as the other guests that he interviews on the Other Life podcast, as well as get a hold of his ebook, Based to Lose, both uh, in PDF form as well as audiobook and uh, in paperback on Amazon. You can find him on Twitter at at J-M-R-P-H-Y. Justin, anything else for the listeners before we let you go? Oh, no, I just want to say thank you uh, for the thoughtful questions and thank you for your interest in my work. Um, actually, if I haven't plugged enough, I'll just quickly also say that I'm doing a course, a, a proper online course on Deleuze versus Heidegger with my colleague and collaborator, Johannes Niederhauser, who's a uh, PhD and scholar in of Heidegger. Um, so it's a cool little course. There's more than six hours of lecture videos. And matter of fact, we're only launching a live seminar cohort. So uh, if this is something that you're interested in actually talking about with other people and want to check out the course. Great. Well, fantastic. You should be able to Google it. Fantastic. Um, so I'll just leave you. Oh, you with... broke up. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I don't know why the connection is bugging out here at the end of the conversation. I'm really sorry about it. Um, yeah, it's all good. I don't know if it's me or you. It's... Sorry, though. Either way. Uh, one last thing I'll, I'll just leave you with is a quote from Deleuze's, Deleuze's essay in the postscript. There is no need to fear or hope, but mm. only to look for new weapons. Justin Murphy, it's been a pleasure. Hell yeah. See ya. Thanks so much, man. Yep, thank I'll you. Touch with you.